Romans chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, look, yea let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Well, friends, we're continuing uh, this series of studies that we've begun in the life, the work, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And uh, we've begun homing in a, a little bit, or a fair bit, we should say, uh, on his uh, character. And tonight we're going to uh, look at the priorities of Christian belief, the priorities for the Apostle Paul, and the priorities really are for all believers. Well, we wish, as we think about these things, and we wish we think about Christian doctrine, we wish that all Christians sang from the, hymn, the same hymn sheet. But sadly, that's not the case. Uh, we all have our differences, and it's uh, something of an unusual thing when Christians meet together that uh, instead of discussing all the things that they share in common and the things that are to be uh, so much delighted in, that rather they're talking about the differences that they are that they have between uh, themselves or between their churches. And uh, we, it's not something new, really. Even in New Testament times, uh, this kind of differences were there. We may have a wrong idea and think everyone was so united in everything uh, that uh, they believed all the same things, they, uh, but it wasn't quite the case. When you look at the Corinthian church, there were some believers in that church who initially didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so the Apostle Paul had to write to them in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, and said, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then you remember in the church at Galatia, they come to faith in Christ. They come to know uh, grace uh, and uh, salvation by grace. But they'd gone away from them when those false teachers uh, came into the church. And Paul had to remind them of these things. On what basis, he says to them, were you saved? Was it works or was it by faith and in Christ? Galatians 3 verse 2, this only would I learn of you, received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And then even in the church at Colossae, uh, there were people there who got mixed up about the person of Christ, such an essential uh, doctrine. And uh, Paul had to write once again and correct and confirm, this is what, what we believe. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, of course, uh, with, with all those things that happen in the church, it's actually worked for our benefit. Those early differences, because Paul had to address them, and he had to speak to them, and he had to write to them, and he had to correct them, and now they are left on record for us, but we can pick up on the, on the truth. And we have some advantage over them uh, in that way. The devil meant it for evil to sow these wrong teachings, these uh, doctrinal differences, uh, which, which were actually on, quite major, but God has used it in his providence to put it on record so that we may stand in a surer place. 
so we may have a, a firmer footing about the things that we believe so that we can be clearer in our own minds about some of these uh, is issues that were uh, differences in the New Testament church. Having said that, <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that now we are all uh, uh, ha uh, together and we have no differences whatsoever. It's not quite true, is it? When you think about baptism, well, there's an issue already that uh, there's a difference of opinion between true Christians, true uh, believers, who is saved or who is, uh, who is to be a member in a church. Some people say it's only those who believe and who are baptized who should be added to the church. Others will say, oh, even children can be uh, members of the church. Then there are other things which uh, we can think about, the return of the Lord. And, and there are so many different uh, opinions and, uh, about this particular doctrine, not only a-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, but within pre-trib, post-trib, and everyone seems to have a different opinion. But uh, these are things that there are differences of. And then the sequence of events of the Lord's coming. Israel was an, is another issue that people uh, differ on. So very, uh, uh, some enormous differences have been around since the very earliest uh, days. When you think about uh, when somebody is converted to Christ, well, how did it happen? Was it just, uh, was it just the, the person uh, realizing his need and of his own will, uh, coming to know the Lord, making a decision, as it were, uh, to turn from his sin and to trust in Christ? Was it a whole responsibility upon the man and because he did it, so, uh, so he was saved? Or was it God working in that person's heart? God inclining that person's heart towards Christ and towards salvation. God opening his heart and, being, and turning his will so that he became interested in these things. Uh, which one is it? Uh, that's what election, uh, that's a fruit of uh, election and people uh, disagree with this. Is man fully responsible for his salvation or is God sovereign in salvation or somewhere in between? So there are a number of uh, differences uh, that exist even uh, today. Now because there are differences uh, that no one can deny, there arises a question and the question that can be uh, stated in a number of ways, but in the end it amounts uh, to the same thing. A simple question might be, uh, what is the absolute minimum that someone has to believe uh, to be a, a real Christian, to be truly uh, converted? Well, let's ask another question. If we count someone to be a believer, a Bible believer, uh, and there, are there some things that uh, two Bible believers might disagree on, and yet we would still count them as brothers in the Lord, both Bible believers? Or one more question. Suppose you had two Bible uh, teachers. This is very relevant. Uh, all these questions are re very relevant for us. Uh, if you have two Bible teachers, two preachers, but they uh, differed on, on some matters, on the things they, they taught, well, how much uh, would they have to believe and to teach for them to be counted faithful uh, to the Word of God and faithful to the Lord in the ministry, uh, in the discharge of their preaching and their teaching 
of the word of God. At, at what point may it be asked of them, well, I can no longer sit under this, this pastor. I can no longer sit under this preacher because he has gone away from fundamental teachings of the scripture. And sad, sad to say, it shouldn't be the case, but sad to say that in these days that we're living in, this is sometimes a question that we really have to ask. Should I be in this place? Should I be in this church? Is that pastor faithful to the word of God or has he veered away from it? I can no longer listen to him because he is unscriptural. So uh, it's, these are questions uh, that uh, we need uh, to think about. However, having said those questions, it's not really going to be uh, the, our focus, our subject of our subject tonight. But it gives us an opening, it gives us a, a leeway, a door uh, into the things that we really want to speak about, and that is the priorities of Christian belief. Uh, what are the priorities in Paul's mind, in Paul's teaching about uh, his beliefs? And of course it is uh, Christ's uh, beliefs, the doctrine uh, of, of Paul, but the doctrine of Christ is what we're looking at. What does the apostle consider fundamental, uh, necessary? What does he see as so crucial, so important, that he majors on it and homes in on it and makes sure uh, that people get it? Is there a Pauline doctrine in the New Testament? Uh, well, we don't, uh, we, of course there is, and we say it's fully in line with Christ's uh, doctrine. There are some people who create a, a division uh, between the two and say Paul's doctrine on, and what Christ's doctrine taught are not, uh, uh, are not the same in certain areas, but we cannot uh, go along with them. They would drive a, a, a wedge between the two, but we see no disparity there. Well, we cannot, <laughs> as much as it would be interesting to do so, go through the whole of Paul's uh, 14 letters uh, to survey uh, that, but uh, we don't need to because we can just uh, read, take a portion of Paul's writing and we can look at that. You know how the Apostle Paul, he packed a lot of information into, uh, into his writing and uh, his writing is very dense. So you have a lot of doctrine there and sometimes, especially as we're going to look at Romans tonight, there's so much there uh, that is there we can draw uh, draw from. And uh, he can't help it. He just, doctrine seems to come out of him at all in every uh, sentence almost uh, that he says. And we can see even uh, here, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, how uh, doctrines are so interlocked, even though he's addressing one or two particular subjects. There are other things which are coming in which we can draw the doctrines, essential doctrines, which we can draw out. So there's a, a wonderfully uh, 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 chapter that we can look at, chapter three. Of course, the whole of Romans is a doctrinal letter that we should be uh, familiar with. And, uh, but here, we're just gonna concentrate on these things. What are the pro uh, Paul's priority for Christian belief? So we have a few. Verse one and two. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God. This is uh, the first uh, thing. The doctrine 
of Scripture. This is uh, paramount, friends, uh, to the Apostle Paul and paramount to us, the doctrine of Scripture. Now, when we talk about Scripture, the Bible, we are thinking about uh, four things. We want to mention four things in connection with Scripture. I'm sure you know this. Uh, inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency. Uh, there is something uh, primary here about uh, this doctrine uh, of Scripture. It's God's revelation. This is where we base all that we believe on, all that we practice comes from this book. This is what God has revealed uh, to us. And all that we believe is uh, from, from it. So it's so vital uh, to Christians as individuals and to church life. It's an inspired book, we say. That means it's God-breathed. It's not a human book. Some people, you know, they treat this as just like any other book, just like a human book, but it's not. This is God's word. This is God's letter to you and me, men and women, boys and girls. This is for everyone. How do I know what God is like? How do I know what God is saying to me? It's in his book. It's in his letter. This is where he's describing himself. This is how he tells us how we can come to know him, to know, to love him, to be in connection with him, to have a relationship with him. This is where he tells us how, how much he has done for us to save us, unworthy as we are. This is not a human book. <laughs> this was written by so many different authors, and yet wonderfully, amazingly, because it's divine, it all connects. The message is one and the same about redemption from Genesis all the way to the end of the book uh, in Revelation. Oh, friends, there's nothing like this inspired book. It's God's word, and we believe all the Bible from cover to cover. Then there's inerrancy. When it was first written down and in the original languages, well, there was no fault in the words that were given. There was, without error, every single word, every jot and every tittle is given uh, by God without uh, fault. There are some people uh, who, who, who seem to say the right thing when they say, well, the Bible contains the word of God, but that's not the best language to use at all because it's what their idea of it is when they say it contains the word of God is that certain portions are, but we don't accept the miracles and we don't accept the supernatural things and we, ch we chuck those out. We say that's not the word of God, but other parts are. You can't do that. You can't do it. How do you, who made you a judge of what's right and, and, and wrong? What should be the word of God and what is? The Bible speaks for itself. It says of itself, that it is uh, in, without uh, error. And we believe it is, and it has been uh, preserved for us in text and faithful translations down through the ages. Authority, the, the third attribute of Scripture, uh, this, that is because it is God's Word. The author of it has the authority to say and do as, as he chooses, and it comes uh, to us uh, with this authority that's why we should believe it, because of who said it. It's somebody, the most important person ever says these things, and he's true. He doesn't lie. 
And so his word can be relied on. Oh, how we wish we had people, isn't it? You cannot rely on people all the time. People let you down in this world, but God doesn't. You trust in him. He doesn't let you down, but his word is true and faithful and the end of all uh, argument. And then we say as well, sufficient. It's all that we need. All that God saw was required for faith and practice. Uh, all that we need to teach us how we are to worship God, to teach us how we are to organize the church, the way that we are to choose the elders and the deacons, the officers in the church. The blueprint for the church is all given to us uh, here uh, in Scripture. Everything we need to know. The principles are, are given to us for every situation that we come across in life. The, all that we need in terms of believing and acting, the Bible is sufficient for us. So Paul, in all his letters, he would have us see that the Bible is all that we need. The Old Testament, these oracles of God, they were given to the Jews. <laughs> it was probably the only thing that they kept sacred uh, in all that time. But of course we know that God was doing that. And then came the New Testament. It is God's revelation to be believed, to be obeyed, uh, to be trusted, uh, and is the end of all argument. All errors in the church, where do they come from? All those fundamental errors from a departure, from an un a misinterpretation of the scriptures. And so it's vital for us to make it a priority in our lives. And then in verse uh, 4, uh, we see another Christian priority. God forbid, yea, yet let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest, be over mightest overcome when thou art judged. And then verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Here we see an equally important truth that Paul uh, gives so much space to in his teaching, the holiness of God, the holiness of God. Paul says that in, in Hebrews that without holiness, no man uh, shall see the Lord. It's impossible to please God, he's saying here. And the reason is because God is holy. And to say that God is holy, well, we know that that's one particular aspect, one particular attribute of God. But that must be interlocked with all the uh, many other attributes of God. So here the, the priority of Christian belief that is being, we could emphasize, is the doctrine of God. This is so crucial, so vital uh, to the apostle. Let God be true. Paul says, uh, or, or, I beg pardon, in other words, let God be God, not one of many, uh, not a, a weak God that has no sovereign power over his universe, not a God that can be manipulated with the thought that man can resist him. What God wants, that's his will, and he is able to do. He is sovereign in what he does. Not a God uh, who, who is uh, weak, but a God who does as he wishes. The holy God He's the perfect God, perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge, perfect in understanding, perfect in his will. All he does, he does well, 
perfectly, without error, without fault. He never says, I, I did it wrong. I should have done it this way. Everything he does is perfect. And this is Paul's God. And this is our God, if we believe in him and trust in him. It's a priority that God is perfect. If we do not believe this, friends, then we have nothing. God is perfect in love. Oh, if we could think of that. God is perfect in judgment, perfect in his, the handling of history, oh, all the events of the universe. Oh, if we have trouble, friends, with this doctrine, we have to put it down uh, to our small, finite minds. We cannot fathom the sovereignty of God over and against our own responsibility for sin. We only know with Paul and with uh, the Bible that God must be sovereign, the supreme God who is blessed forever and who is perfect forever. But in verse five, 4 and 5, we see a little bit more of this. Uh, God is true, but in uh, verse 5 also we see, sorry, verse 4, uh, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And here he's speaking about the justice of God. And though we don't have time to explore everything here, God will take a vengeance. And though man may object to that idea, and dislike that idea and reframe God to say something else and perhaps even accuse God of being unrighteous and of being unfair. Well, we can say what we like for <laughs> what we say or what we think, friends, really at the end doesn't really account for anything uh, with God. God will judge the world and he will do it in righteousness. That's what verse 6, God forbid. For how then shall God judge the world? Paul says that if God were unrighteous, if there were even a tiny ounce, a tiny bit of unrighteousness in him, then how can he judge the world? That he wouldn't be able uh, to do that. Uh, he, but he, he will judge the world, and that shows that without doubt, God is righteous, and he will be a righteous judge. Now the the, judge, the justice of God is essential, friends, uh, to our belief, uh, to Christian faith. And we can think of all sorts of reasons why it's so essential. But what would be the point of the gospel uh, if uh, this were not so? What, why seek to evangelize the community as we do, to tell other people about the Lord Jesus, to tell them to flee from the wrath to come, if these, the justice of God it's just a fairy story, or it's, it's an untruth. It's just something that is crucial to our faith. If there is no judgment, well, why warn people? And even more, maybe to the point, where would God's holiness and righteousness be if he were not to act against sin and against sinners? What would be the point of him giving us the holy law, the Ten Commandments, if there was no judgment? Think about that. Why would he give those uh, commandments? And why would he insist upon the commandments uh, if the law was just there uh, to be a guide? There must also be a judgment uh, if it's broken. 
with enough friends, we have to say that the justice of God is essential because without it, we could never understand the cross. We could never understand the heart of the gospel. Why would a loving Savior, the Son of God, come from heaven and give his life for millions and millions of people who trust in him? Why would he die in the place of sinners? Such a cruel death, such a shameful death, such an embarrassing death, such a horrifying, cruel death where people made fun of him and poked fun of him and mocked him as he was there dying on the cross. Why would God allow his son to go through such a thing if there was no justice of God? It must be, because there on the cross we know Christ was taking upon himself the justice that should have fallen upon you and me who trust in him and was bearing away our sins. The Father poured out on his Son that very justice that we deserved. The most horrifying event in the whole of history was, that, was the cross. But there, the Son of God, there God's justice was being satisfied by Christ dying on that cross and a way being opened for us to be uh, forgiven. So essential. And yet, sadly, so many so-called churches are not talking about the justice of God and are just talking about the love of God and trying to lure people with the love of God. Well, then you just made the cross of Christ a little bit of a, an example rather than an explanation for our sin and judgment, how it can be truly removed away from us. But we, this is such an essential doctrine uh, for us still today. But I must move on. In verses 9 to 18, sorry about verses 9 to 18, I didn't write it. Uh, it's the, the Apostle Paul, it's the Lord wrote, uh, gave it to him. Uh, it's a dreadful description. And if you're into man's self-esteem, you might want, to, you might be pretty shocked by these uh, words. And if you have a very high opinion of man, well, perhaps we all need to read it. Description of man here in his uh, unbelief. Now, friends, whenever uh, preachers uh, preach on this topic, uh, they tend to introduce it in the most uh, careful and uh, delicate manner, and there are a number of reasons uh, why we would do that. And one is the title that is given to it by theologians. Uh, the other is that there are uh, so many uh, sincere believers that really have a, a problem uh, even with this uh, doctrine, uh, but usually because it's uh, misunderstood or blatantly denied by many so-called believers. And uh, though I'm hesitating a little bit here, it's also that we might first uh, remind ourselves uh, that it's an essential truth of our faith. It's a major truth taught by the apostle here, but that it's also a truth that also occupies a large portion of scripture. It's not only Paul that's gonna talk about this particular doctrine, but you can find it throughout the Bible. Uh, but in spite, uh, here, here the Apostle Paul is describing every single uh, person. And we can begin to just have a look at this in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, this is not only them, but us. There is none righteous. No, not one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. This is the description of every single man and woman, boy and girl. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery. Oh, it goes on and on, isn't it? It's, it gets worse and worse. Are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, friends, what a list it is. Uh, but in, uh, here Paul uh, is uh, making known to us the doctrine of man, that we are all uh, sinners. And this is why we so need a savior. A person who hasn't realized that they are a sinner will never seek a savior. As our Lord put it so simply and wonderfully, it's only the sick who will go and visit their GP, not the, the healthy. And it's only when we realize that we are uh, sinners that we will feel our need of Christ as the Savior to, say, to forgive us uh, and to bring us to God. Well, friends, uh, we don't measure up to these things. And maybe perhaps we don't reach to the depths that are spoken of in verse 13 to 16 of those who have gone all out uh, in their sin. But the simple point here for us to get is that all of us, there is something wrong with all of us till we are converted and forgiven. <coughs> there is something total about unrighteousness and about our sinful nature that is ours as soon as we are born into this world. Now, in looking at the Apostle's words here and seeking a title that is used for all of this, you notice that the problem uh, is with man, and it's described in terms of his spiritual inability. That's what we're thinking about, the spiritual inability of man. Verse 10, no, there is none righteous. He cannot be uh, righteous. There's verse 11, there is none that understandeth. Uh, that is spiritually understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Verse 12, they are all gone wrong. They're all gone the, the wrong way. They're all together become unprofitable. Uh, they're no use really uh, to God as they are. None do good and that is certainly as far as God is concerned. Oh, but man does do some good, doesn't he? <laughs> man does help other people. Man does uh, look after his children and love his children and bring them up well and care for people. Doesn't, doesn't he do that? Yes, he does that. But the, thing, the point here, friends, is that in terms of why he does those things, he doesn't do it for God. He doesn't do it to please God. It's not, I'm, I'm going to look after my family because I want to please God in this. I want to give to charity because that's honoring to God. No, God is not in his mind. He's doing it in a natural way. Uh, but this is all to do with our relationship with the Lord. If Are we doing things in reference to pleasing him or just for ourselves and what is defined as good? Verse 17, uh, this is after the worst case of setting, we read, the way of peace have they not known. We have 
no peace. It's, it's unknown to us. Verse 18, uh, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No reverence for the Lord. No love for God. An absence of any thought of love and obedience for the Lord. This is the state that we find ourselves in when we are unconverted. When you put them all together, when you seek a title, and this is all to do with spiritual inability. To seek God, to find Him, to please Him. Uh, is it universal? It, uh, this, uh, we are all uh, unable uh, to do these things. Uh, it, it's something that affects uh, everyone and affects all our being. We don't have the will to go for God. We don't want God. We don't want God. We have no desire for God, naturally. We don't want to be in the Bible study. We don't want to be in church. We don't want to be reading our Bibles. We don't want to worship God, naturally. This is not our inclination. This is, this is what God is saying. This is what this is saying. And we don't have any will to move towards him. It's God must work. This is why it's called total inability. It doesn't mean to say that we're totally bad, but we're totally unable to come to God. We don't have the ability uh, to save ourselves. We are unable to seek God unless, unless, well, but for God, unless God works in our hearts and in our minds to do so, unless he puts in that inclination by his spirit in us, then we will begin to, to seek him. Oh, friends, this is a great mystery, but Paul and the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible show that if man is left to himself, well, he will never seek the Lord. Uh, this has tremendous implications for us uh, also because we see as we think about these things, man is in such a state, then our salvation, if we're saved, must be all of grace. It must be all of God's doing. And so it is. We did not want it. We did not seek it. We fought against it. But there was a time in God's wonderful providence uh, when he brought us under the sound of the gospel and he opened our blind eyes, set our wills free, gave us those desires to, to him which we never had naturally and we began to seek him, and we found him, and we called upon his name for forgiveness and salvation. God did it all wonderfully. It's by grace we are saved uh, through faith, and even that faith is a gift of God. Now, uh, when we preach the gospel, uh, we, uh, this is what we want. Isn't it? We want to see uh, men and women uh, saved. This is uh, our intention, the young people. We want to see them rescued and saved and coming to the Lord. And that's why we must pray and do pray uh, for people to be saved. We ask the Lord to open people's hearts like Lydia's, to speak to people's souls. We urge people uh, to ask God to help them, to give them that inclination if they don't have it. Even the desire to want to have the inclination is something from God. But God must help people. God must do the work. When we begin to see a soul seeking after God, truly, that's a great sign. That's a, a, a good thing, isn't it? We can be sure that God is at work in that person because as we read here, total, of total inability, spiritually speaking, to seek God, then unless God intervenes in the life of a sinner, then all is lost. So that's why, friends, 
we pray so earnestly for those near and dear to us. Uh, we mustn't be surprised when people don't want the Lord, they don't want the track, they don't want to hear the, the, the Bible read to them, they don't want to listen to you. They're not, we're not surprised by that, but that's why we pray that God will take a, give them an inclination and a desire uh, for these things. Lord, help them. Lord, open their hearts. Lord, show them the truth. Lord, save them. Open their eyes. Let them see these things. This was uh, Paul's essential belief. And it's the reason for our witness, our gospel preaching, the church's mission, earnest prayer, must attend uh, all that we do uh, uh, in terms of evangelism. Well, I move on very quickly. Verse 19 uh, talks about the law of God, another essential Christian doctrine. And now we know that what things, soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And also, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. For Paul, the law was uh, important. Uh, the Ten Commandments here are in mind, and uh, not just the bare bones of the Ten Commandments, uh, but uh, which, you know, you know them, do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, but the spiritual aspects as well of it. All, all robbery uh, is uh, not just taking from others, but robbing also from God. I, I owe my heart and my life to God. When I keep it for myself, I'm robbing God of that which belongs to him. Falsehood is uh, not just telling lies, exaggeration, gossip. Adultery is not just physical adultery, but spiritual adultery, disloyalty to the Lord. The Ten Commandments then, friends, establishes the holiness of God and sets the standard uh, for the Christian uh, life. We are not of those that say, uh, of whom there are a number these days, the Ten Commandments are of no use to us. And now that we are the Lord's, we can dispense with it. We are under grace. We're not under the law. Well, friends, uh, we've, we've addressed this issue uh, many times, but it's still uh, necessary for us. Before we're, sa we're saved, yes, we don't resort to the law to try and be saved. But after we are Christians, the law is our uh, guideline uh, to teach us how uh, to live our life in a way that pleases our God. But it is the law is so wonderful because it reflects the actual character of God and uh, t as well as teaching us how to live. All the laws of, of Christ in the New Testament really are an expounding of the Ten Commandments and uh, God willing in our Sunday morning sermons we'll be uh, coming to that in due time. But we are obligated to keep the law. Uh, for this, uh, Paul, uh, for Paul, this was uh, essential. The law was established. The law is still important uh, to him. Why is it, friends, uh, so much uh, unholy practices creep in amongst the Lord's people, not taking seriously those Ten Commandments? They're bypassing them. It doesn't really matter. Well, it does. Well, I'm not going to spend very long as I come to a conclusion, verse 20 uh, is the uh, Christian priority of uh, no salvation uh, by works, by the deeds of the law. There shall no flesh be justified 
in his sight. What a hammer blow uh, to the Jews who uh, trusted in their uh, rituals and uh, their ceremonies and who thought they could obtain salvation by keeping the, the law. Uh, but for all the world also there is this uh, belief that you can earn heaven, isn't it? People still think that today, but it's not. Salvation is freely given uh, to those who come to Christ. It cannot be earned. This is so much the cornerstone of Paul's gospel. Verses 20 to 23, I won't read it uh, now. Uh, it's also justification by faith. Martin Luther said justification by faith alone. He added that word alone, and uh, it's probably quite rightly he did so. Verse 24, his grace justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ, a free salvation, uh, that which we rejoice in, the grace of God. Again, a biblical doctrine as well as a Pauline one. Verse 25, uh, the, the atonement had imputed righteousness. Oh, how, how clearly uh, Paul has brought this out uh, for us. Uh, God's wrath is turned away by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Verses 30 and 31 again, the unconditional salvation. It is through faith. Well, there are so many other things which are not mentioned in this chapter. The Trinity, the divinity of Christ, his resurrection, the church, the body of Christ. Uh, but as we see in this one chapter, he has already packed uh, so many things, so many essential things uh, into uh, this, this word. The priorities, friends, of Christian belief. Sadly, today, doctrine is a taboo uh, for many people. We don't want doctrine, people say. Uh, we want love. <laughs> we want cooperation. Uh, doctrine is only truth, friends. It's uh, learning. It's teaching. It's understanding. And these are the essential things, uh, truths in the Bible. Without them, well, all is meaningless. And what we do is aimless. And may the Lord help us to hold on tenaciously uh, to these essential truths. Amen. Um.